By the way, I just want to say about Grace Place, we're really, we've just struggled for a while now for whatever reason, and today we had everything lined up, as I understand it, correct? And then, and then our person got sick. It's just, it's COVID, it's the flu, it's the um, well-known crud, and uh, yeah, we're just, uh, we're doing the best we can. So parents, if you're, you're like, ah, why are they not, it's, it's, it's just kind of how, how it works out. But we'll do better. We will do better as we go along. <coughs> you know, we have had some setbacks on the Afghanistan uh, thing with the Afghan family come bringing them in, and uh, you, we've, we've dotted a lot of I's and crossed a lot of T's and worked really hard, but ultimately our big problem is housing, and uh, we've looked at some, you know, one thing that would be really great is if we could get them in over here at the, at the new apartments that were put in a couple years ago, the reserves. But a funny thing, a funny thing with that, um, those are, I think, privately owned, but, they, but they're kind of government-steered apartments. They, they fit certain regulations, and there's all kinds of governmental paperwork and necessities that have to be filled out and, and fulfilled in order to get in there. Well, so there's that on the one side from the government. On the other side, you've got the Afghan refugees, and that's a whole government program too, believe it or not. You know, we brought them in. The government established certain rules and regulations and ways of trying to get them situated. And uh, strange, you've never heard of this before, but in this case, government doesn't seem to know what government's doing. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was possible, but... Um, because the, the regulations that they have over there are completely against and contrary to what these people are operating under. So we have to, before they can actually be there, they have to actually be here and have worked with a job history <laughs> and a social security. It's just, yeah, it's just a mess. Who would have thought bringing a family of a different language and a different, you know, culture all the way around to the other side of the world here to Great Bend, Kansas would not run smoothly? It, it, it just kind of is. A biblical church is a little bit like that. A biblical church is an embassy or like an embassy of another country established on the other side of the world among a people speaking a different language with all kinds of different cultural assumptions. If you wanted to borrow from Augustine, the great church father Augustine, from whom we, so much good theology and stuff came down from Augustine, um, but he talked about the city of God and the city of man. You know, that's, that, that was one of his great uh, books, was the city of God. And, he, and in it, he just establishes the idea that when you are in the kingdom, when you're part of the church, when you're in the kingdom, you are in the city of God, which is occupying the same sort of geography and space as the city of man. And these two are not utterly co cooperative with one another. And yet, for, for the time being, until Christ returns, we, we kind of live simultaneously taking up the same space. And there are always issues with that. In our text, Paul and Barnabas have left Pisidian Antioch. That was the whole, all of chapter 13. They're still kind of in that region of Galatia. They're moving from a very Roman area. Not that this matters to you probably, but they move from that into kind of an area that's more uh, Greek in culture. And, uh, and what happens there at this city they come to, Iconium, what happens there is almost like a template. A template, you're familiar with templates? You use word... Microsoft Word means a pattern, right? 
It's like a pattern for how the gospel comes to new cities as Paul and Barnabas go on the first and then, of course, the second and third missionary journey. It always kind of goes in this kind of pattern-like way. And I think for us, although we're in a different scenario, and I hasten to say that, and I know if you're, if you're really into the Bible and your Bible scholarship and you're, you're looking at this and you're going, oh, don't, don't go too far with the book of Acts, Jay, you know, because the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive meaning how we apply it, not everything is in here saying, thus you go and do likewise. So how, how do you apply this? I think the pattern that you see here is very typical. It's, it's a typical gospel work in a typical city. And for that reason, even though we're not apostles and we're not breaking new ground, uh, a lot of these principles are likely to pertain to us as well. So here's the big idea today. Prepare realistically for the gospel work. Prepare realistically for the gospel work. And if you're sitting there going, well, I'm not doing the gospel work. If you're part of our church, you are. <laughs> All right? this, is not a, this is not a Lone Ranger passage. I'm not speaking just to you as individuals. I'm, I, I am speaking to you as individuals, but as individuals who are part of a gospel work. Yeah? Yeah? All right. Teamwork. We're, we're a gospel work, people, and, and you're part of it. And so as we think about it, and this will, at, at points along the way, you'll be like, yeah, that's something we need to take to heart here at Grace Community Church. It's a helpful way of dealing with, with things that really come up and really do happen. So just think realistically. First of all, we may need to speak in a convincing way. We may need to speak in a convincing way. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way, spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, I don't know if you maybe picked out the fact that I was intoning the words and spoke in such a way. I did. <laughs> so you'd see it. But they hit me. They jumped out at me. I went, what does he mean, spoke in such a way? And is that good, a good translation? Because that's just a bunch of little words thrown together, which maybe they could have been thrown together. So I went and I got into my Greek and I looked at it. And that's actually a really good translation of what is being said there, which means Luke is telling us that they spoke in a way that was convincing. They, they came at it. They chose their words carefully. They spoke into that city of man, knowing the language, and they spoke in such a way as to be persuasive. Now, why is that significant? Theologically, I think it is significant because sometimes we can err on, on the side of truth. You know, we, we get a hold of one truth that's true, but then sometimes we err too much on the side of that truth. Let me, let me explain what I'm saying. We know that people come to faith in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It, it's not how smart I am up here or how smart you are in conversations with people. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that Paul elsewhere said, hey, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with this incredible oratory, this great eloquence of speech, but it was with the Holy Spirit with power. Now, was Paul lying when he said that? 
If I say yes, you should just get up and leave. No, of course he wasn't lying. But what I think he was saying was, it's more about the work of the Holy Spirit than it is about how convincing I am. And in a way, the gospel is a humble message. In a way, the gospel isn't this great, eloquent thing. In one sense, it's a very simple message. But if you look at eloquence, Paul really was eloquent, wasn't he? He was persuasive. He did speak in such a way as to be very convincing. Go back and look at all of chapter 13. He didn't just go to the Jews and go, hey, the gospel, believe it, done. He went, hey, you know what? Let me take you through the whole Old Testament in a nutshell and show you what happened. Let me tell you about the empty tomb where Jesus was, was risen from the dead and how they mistreated him and, and, and so on and so forth. He brought it all together in the most beautiful way, which was just tailored for that audience. And later he'll get to Athens what was Athens known for? Philosophers. And he speaks there. He even quotes some of the Greek philosophers. As he speaks, he speaks in such a way as to be convincing. All I'm saying here is don't run completely off the edge where some people get to based on a very true thing. And they'll say, look, you know, it has to be the Holy Spirit. People need to hear the truth. And they think that sharing the gospel is just going, hey, you're going to hell. Believe the gospel. Done. And they're out of there, right? I mean, I guess God could work that way, and I'm not saying God can't work that way, but I'm saying if that's how you feel you have to be, that's not what, it, that's not what the text tells us. It's clear that we are to speak in a way that is winsome. No, it doesn't mean you deny the gospel. Don't deny the gospel. Make sure the gospel is in there. But just you may have to speak in a manner which is convincing. And we may get to see a harvest. We may get to see a harvest. Verse 1 tells us that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Should we expect that? Is that reasonable? On the one hand, we can say, well, we are not apostles. That's a big distinction. And we can say, too, that we are not plowing the same ground that they plowed. They were plowing virgin soil. The gospel had never been brought to Iconium before. And so naturally, that's a different scenario than, say, oh, I don't know, Great Bend. <laughs> Great Bend has had the gospel preached and believed and spread and so on and so forth. And we understand that. And there is a difference in soils, isn't there? When you think about the the, the, the parable of the sower he went out and he sows and that's analogous to the gospel the word of Christ being sown and it falls on all kinds of different soil and we know we're not we're not throwing it onto brand new soil that's never had the gospel before and we understand that some of the places here in Great Bend I won't name any specific places it's not like it's a specific street or something but um there may be a few streets like that. But, uh, where, you know, where, where people have trodden the ground and it's hard and it's packed down and you're throwing the seed and nothing's happening. That, that can happen. But does that mean we should not expect to see a harvest in Great Bend? I don't think so. I'm not that pessimistic because, you know what, it is still the gospel that we're sharing. And the gospel is the power of God. For salvation for everyone who believes. And there are still people who are, who are going to be one to Christ. And, and, and so we should look for that harvest. Let me tell you a quick secret though. There is a way to guarantee you will have no harvest. Well that seems backward. 
Why would you tell us the secret for not having a harvest? Sometimes, you know, if you know what you shouldn't do, you kind of know what you should. You know, you know how you can guarantee have no harvest whatsoever? Just let the church be about something other than the gospel. Make the church about something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. There you go, no harvest. But if we're preaching the gospel, I think, I think we have a reasonable expectation that, that we will see people one to Christ. Thirdly, we may face alienation of affection. You know what alienation of affection is, correct? When people come in and they intentionally do something behind your back or maybe right in front of you, but they, they turn people against you. Anybody ever have that happen? Show of hands. Anybody ever experienced that ever in your life? Oh, okay, good. I, I mean, it's not good. It wasn't fun, was it? I'll never forget my freshman year of high school. I'll even tell you the year, although they tell you not to tell people how old you are. Um, 1972. <gasps> Gasp. I was a freshman in high school in 1972, and uh, I was pretty good at tennis. I played uh, tennis in this kind of a summer league kind of a thing, and I went out for the tennis team, and, um, and I made it. I made the varsity my freshman year. And, uh, and what happened was there was a guy who was a junior or senior when I was a freshman, and he had not been a great tennis player, but he'd been on the team for several years, and he had been on that bubble for the number five spot, the bottom rung of the varsity, and I bumped him off. Yeah. And thus began a campaign to hate Jay. Let's all hate that young punk that made the varsity team. It was not a pleasant experience. It was, it was, it was, it was the worst, about the worst year or two of my life. Anyway, one minute, Paul and Barnabas are riding high. They're feeling good. They've made the varsity. I mean, they, they, they have preached the gospel, and many... Many have believed. It's, it's, it's kind of a revival. And then it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They poisoned their minds against the brothers. They took all the people who were still on the fence that hadn't made a decision for the gospel, and they poisoned their minds. They alienated their affections. They, they spread suspicions and character assassinations such that they alienated those remaining Gentiles. And here's the million-dollar question. Do you think anything like that could happen in Great Bend, Kansas? I'll just let you ponder that for a second. Could it? If you ha assuming for a moment you had a gospel-believing gospel living gospel preaching church just a simple gospel church could there be people in great bend that wouldn't like that and that would spread evil against it i'm going to go out on a limb here and say yeah it could happen it could happen i am not privy to when and where those kinds of things happen but i assume that it probably happens it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you having a bit of fun there, but uh, we, when we preach the gospel, when we call men and women to the obedience of faith, it can be like that. It doesn't mean we walk around with a chip on our shoulder, because I know that's kind of what it sounds like. I'm not saying that at all, but what I'm saying is it's about those reasonable expectations. Just let, let me ask you this. Do you reasonably expect that if we're doing everything right, 
that everybody in this town's going to love us? That's silly. That's a silly thing to think. Nothing in the Bible should prepare you for that thought. If we do everything right, as God defines right, there will be people who hate us for that. And that's just a reasonable understanding. I'm not saying you go around and worry about it and have the big chip on your shoulder and feel paranoid. I'm just saying it's a way of understanding how the world works. We, we are part of the city of God in the city of man, and that's true. Even in Great Bend, which is great because it's got the word great in the name. We may need to put in the time is the next expectation. We may need to put in the time. It says, so they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. And I don't know how long a time exactly is, is meant here. Uh, but, you know, they, they had two outcomes. One, on, on the one hand, is they had great reception of the gospel. A large number. How large? I don't know. Was it half the city? A lot of Jews and Greeks believed that meant that they had a fledgling church which had to be planted, had to be firmed up, had to be protected. When it said in the previous, uh, previous portion there that, uh, that they stirred them up against the brothers, who are the brothers? It's not just Paul and Barnabas. It's saying that they stirred them up against all of the Christians there, all these little baby. can you imagine that? You've got a church that has sprung up from nothing in a city that has never even heard of the gospel, in a city where a lot of people didn't even know the God of the Old Testament, and now there's this church, but it's brand new, and already there's persecution breaking out against it. I believe Paul and Barnabas stayed there as long as humanly possible because it deserved their attention. If that's the case for the apostles, is it, would it be true for us? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, if you think about it, the job description of an apostle is to be moving from place to place. Apostles did not go and stay. It was just part of the job of an apostle to keep moving, to keep moving outward, to stay in a place for a matter of months or maybe in one case a year up to two years. But beyond that, that, it, that wasn't their gig. That wasn't what Paul was about. He was about taking the gospel to places it hadn't been heard. But when you talk about time commitment, I think when you're talking about a gospel church, you're talking about a willingness to put in the time. Now, we live in a very transient age, don't we? And people move from place to place quite quickly. And, and to some extent, you know, we can't, we can't stop that. I'm not preaching against moving. You know, that'd be, a, that'd be a silly tilting after windmills for sure. But I am saying that, that when we think about the work of the church, we shouldn't think about instant, <laughs> instant success, instant, like an instant tea I mean, we all like instant tea. It's way easier, isn't it, than making it with all the old tea. It doesn't taste as good, but you know, it's just a lot less work. But you can't think about the work of the church that way. There is a sense in which we have to be committed. We have to put in the time. As a pastor, pastors are not apostles. And so pastors are, pastors are more like Timothy. You know, Paul leaves Timothy in one place so that, so that he, can, he can have that long-term effect. And, and that's an expectation that it takes time. We may experience his witness to our witness. How many of you have seen the movie Chariots of, of Fire? 
You remember the, the moment in that, and if you don't, I'm just going to explain it for briefly to those that don't, but, but there's this moment, Eric Little, he was the, the great Scottish runner and Christian, and he had chosen not to run on, on the Sabbath. They had scheduled his race, his event, for the Sabbath, which means Sunday for him, and, um, and he just said, I won't do it. It was against his, his Christian convictions, and so they ended up putting him in a, in a race that really wasn't one of his good races wasn't best for him, but they put him in anyway. And there's this moment in the film, it's really a dear moment where this uh, American runner comes over and hands him a little slip of paper and it's a quote from 1 Samuel, uh, those who honor me, those I will honor. Those who honor me, those I will honor. And, and look at what it says here and see if, you can, see if you can pick that principle out here. It says, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. So Paul and Barnabas are in a tough situation. They've already you know, had all the people poisoning the minds of the unbelievers against them. They're, they're in a real cauldron here, a real crucible, but they are hanging in there. They're sticking it out. They're putting in the time, and they are being bold. They're not like sitting back, you know, in, in back alley somewhere out of the way. They're right out there, and they're just bold, and they're proclaiming the word of God. And what happens? What happens? Jesus bears witness to them. It says, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. So they're preaching boldly, and Jesus is honoring them by signs and miracles that were done through them. Now, we can't give to the Lord in such a way that he becomes our debtor, but we can be sure of this principle. It's a basic Christian principle that you see throughout the scripture, that if we honor him before men, he will honor us before his father. Those who honor me, those I will honor. It, it, it is a principle. How do we apply that to our gospel work here in Great Bend? Well, the Lord promises that he will honor those who honor him. We can know that. We can know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, even when it's hard slogging. Even when we don't see immediately every, because let's face it, we're impatient. How many are ever impatient? You want it now? Anyone? And in church, we're like, why why aren't we seeing, you know, a thousand people here at Grace and and, uh, (laughs) things like that? And where where is everyone? What happened? And we get get down. We get down so, so easily. But there, there is a promise here. I take this to be uh, an intrinsic promise of the scripture, that if we are proclaiming the gospel, if we are orienting our lives to the gospel, holding out the gospel, believing it, that God will honor that. Now if you say, how will he honor it? In what ways do you see God honoring it? I could go on and on of ways that I believe that God is honoring the work of the gospel here in this church. For those that don't know, this empty rose vase here, I'll just come around and show it to you. We have an empty rose vase. If you thought, hmm, somebody needs to go to school and learn about decor, you don't just put an empty vase up on. Well, the empty vase is there so that when someone comes to Christ through the ministry of this church, and it doesn't have to be within the four walls, but if through the witness of somebody at our church, someone comes to Christ, then we put a rose in there. And I've yet to be here 
in a year when that rose vase was empty at the end of the year. We empty it at the beginning of the year, and then by the end of the year, we, we usually have roses in there. That could be one of the ways that we could say God honors it. We've had a lot of years, well, in fact, the last 10 years, I would say every year it looked like we were gonna finish in the red, <laughs> and every year we finished in the black. Is it, there's a hundred, and God is sovereign, we trust him, we, we don't have specific demands, God, if we do this, you have to do X, Y, and Z, but we see that, that this principle remains true, amen? I think I, I would say amen to that. So, with that we may say, we may not win them all. We may not win them all. It says, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. We are not promised blank, blanket success in the church. Sadly, I wish it were true, I wish it were different, but um, we're not even promised that within our families, are we? Did Jesus promise that your whole family would be all united in, in the love of the gospel? I wish, I wish that that was a promise, but what does he promise us? He said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to uh, bring division. The, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. <laughs> the Bible says we, we don't always see everyone within our family even come to the Lord. And if that's true, the earliest days of the church, which it clearly was here, they were divided, isn't it still true today? Should we expect that, that just because we're here doing a gospel work that all of Great Bend will believe? And they'll all come to grace on top of it. Should we think that? Should, why, why, would, why would we think that? I'll tell you why we think that to some extent. I think we're, we're prone to that kind of thinking because there's this idea of salesmanship that's very real here in America. What do salesmen learn? They learn that if you have a good enough pitch and you believe enough in your pitch that you can sell to anyone. Isn't that what they, they always pump salesmen up to believe that? Get out there now. Say the right thing. Do the right thing. Put the right spin on it. And you will be able to sell ice makers to Inuits and, and it'll be grand. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Our preaching is a faithful sowing of the seed. And that seed falls on all kinds of soils. And we have to understand that. Will some of that lead to fruit? I think there is a reasonable expectation that even in this day, we will see a harvest, we will see fruit, but does that mean we will see it with every place where we, we put work and effort in? No. How many think this, this I'm not, you don't have to put your hand, but how, much are a little, how many of you are a little leery about bringing an Af Afghani family here? Huh? Oh, what are the chances? I don't know. Do you? But what are we, but, but what are we doing? We're, we're being faithful. We're being faithful and we're doing a gospel work and we'll let God determine how that comes out. But, but at, is there an expect, expectation that we could see a harvest? I say yes. I say yes. We may face real threats against us. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. The day I was preparing this message, I was starting on Monday, I uh, wasn't finished, but I started. There was a story in the news, I don't know how many might have caught this, it was, wasn't a big news item, 
but in Uganda, so right there, you know, we don't get that much Uganda news floating into the, uh, to the U.S. news uh, scene, but it was a story out of Uganda. It was a Christian guy, an evangelist, and an apologist for his Christian faith. He had been scheduled, it had been arranged that he was going to go. There was going to be this open-air dialogue between Muslims and Christians, and he was going to represent the gospel. He'd been invited. On his way, a group of Muslims stopped his car, pulled him out, and beat him within an inch of his life with an iron bar. And, and he survived, but barely. And I read that story the day I was starting to look at this text, and I thought, wow. <laughs> I don't remember the last time that happened to me. And it's not because they, they beat the memory out of me. It's never happened to me. Has it ever happened to you? But a gospel work is likely to face opposition, to face real threats. They planned on stoning Paul and Barnabas to death in anger toward the gospel work. And the enemy of our souls is still at work today, and he's still at work in the world, even in places like Great Bend, Kansas. Are the threats the same? Not identical, no. I mean, you can't, there, there is a low, low likelihood in 2022 that I'm going to be stopped by a group of, of, of angry, you know, anti-Christian zealots to pull me out and beat me with an iron rod on my way into church. It's just not very likely to happen here in Great Bend. But does that mean our enemy, the devil, just gives up and says, ah, We'll just let the church function with, no, no, it's just going to be of a different kind, and, and we, we need to understand that, because there will be times that we face fiery trials. They may just not look quite that spelled out and distinct, but you can bet that if the church is doing a gospel work, that there will be a pushback. It's just part of the, part of the deal. We may need to strategically retreat. Doesn't sound like a good point to put into a sermon. We, we may need to strategically retreat. If, if you're familiar with the Voice of the Martyrs, I, how many are familiar with that organization, Voice of the Martyrs? You'll know that it was started by a guy named Richard Wurmbrand, and, uh, and he was a Romanian pastor. He, he was persecuted under the Nazis, and the Nazis left, and, and then the Russians came in, and they persecuted him. They had him in jail for, I don't know, it, it was a long time, it was like, was it 10 years or something along those lines, and um, tortured him the whole time. He couldn't, never walked right the rest of his life. They, they'd beaten him so badly, especially in, the, in, the, in his feet, that he couldn't, he couldn't walk, but when he finally got out of that prison, he was given an opportunity to flee to the West, and he didn't want to do it. And people said, no, you can do more outside of Romania. You can do more out in the West f to help the persecuted church, and that's how the Voice of the Martyrs got started. Paul and Barnabas are facing a plot to kill them. Now, what would have been the appropriate thing to do? Part of us goes, well, they should have stayed there and let themselves be stoned. If that was God's will, then they should have just let themselves be stoned. It says, here's what the text says. They learned of it, and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. Now, many times, martyrs get one shot. It's a one and done. Can you think of any of those? Not that long ago, a few chapters earlier, we had a man by the name of Stephen. Remember Stephen? 
And, he, and, and they arrested him and they brought him before a tribunal, before the council, and he stood his ground and he gave his defense and he proclaimed the gospel and they stoned him on the spot. And that was the end of Stephen's earthly life and he was taken home. You could look at James, the brother of John, and, and a very, very similar thing happens. With Paul, we know eventually he'll end up in Rome before Nero and he'll lose his life in that way. But up until that time, it was at this point not the Lord's will that Paul die halfway through what we call the first missionary journey. Otherwise, we would have just called it the missionary journey the very short missionary journey. Uh, but it was not the Lord's will. The Lord had a different plan for Paul, and so there was this strategic retreat that took. And any military strategist worth his salt would tell you that, that there are times when the smart thing to do, you think about Dunkirk. How many saw the movie Dunkirk? Right? It was just a time, a huge retreat, huge, huge debacle, and they had to pull back and, uh, and live to fight another day. How would we apply that kind of principle uh, in Great Bend? And I kind of hesitate to even suggest because I'm not absolutely sure, but, but what I do think it tells us is this, is that sometimes those things to us that look like failure and may even look shameful, that look like a defeat of the gospel, are no such thing. You think about it, from time to time you hear about churches that, that have to close their doors, and sometimes it's because the denomination has gone theologically liberal, and the people of the church say, no, I don't want to do that, and, and they have to close the church over it. And you look at that and you go, well, that's a black eye for the gospel, isn't it? Not necessarily, it's, it's a strategic defeat. Or you hear about a pastor who takes a biblical stand and the church doesn't like it and some people get angry and some families leave and pretty soon people say, you know what, if it's gonna be that way, why don't you go find another church? And he, and he, and he leaves. And you go, isn't that a black eye for the gospel? No, I, I, think that's, I think we should expect to see things like that. It's the nature of it that sometimes it comes to those kinds of things and yet God is still on the throne. God didn't lose in Iconium. Do you get the feeling like God lost something? Not at all. Not at all. God's in control. Even in things that look strategically at that moment to be defeat are not defeats for the gospel. Here's the final idea. We may live to preach another day. They flee, but where do they go and what do they do? Well, they, they flee to these other areas, Lystra and Derby, and uh, it says, and there they continued to preach the gospel. That should just be, you know, how many have ever wanted to have a little saying at the bottom of their email that always goes out? Wouldn't that be a good footnote for every email? Just, and there they continued to preach the gospel. It, 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 I think that works. A church got planted in Iconium. It was a huge deal. But then, uh, then what happens from there on, the, the people throughout the rest of the region, they get to hear the gospel because Paul and Barnabas continue on and, and they live to preach another day. Wherever they go, they're proclaiming the word of God. We are flesh and bone brothers and sisters, and we can be destroyed. Our earthly lives, this earthly tent, as it's called, can be destroyed. Our lives are like a mist, like a morning vapor, James tells us. 
Peter writes this, he says, all, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you. If we die, we die unto the Lord. If we live, we live unto the Lord. And the footnote and, and the last word is that wherever we go and whatever we do, we will preach the gospel. Amen? Amen. Okay. If Grace Community Church lasts another 100 years, I trust that it will continue to proclaim the gospel. But whatever happens, whether we face persecution, whether we face setbacks, if we are breathing, that's the bottom line. If you're breathing, you're preaching. If we continue to live out our lives for this time in Great Bend, Kansas, this church will be a gospel work in this community. That's my belief. If you don't have Christ today, we, uh, we've been talking a lot about the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Maybe you don't know what the gospel is. It doesn't take long to explain. The gospel is very simple. The gospel means good news. And the good news starts out with bad news. The bad news is that we are all sinners. We sin. We fall short of the glory of God. We are born in sin. And apart from salvation, we are lost. But God loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world. And this is a, this is a faithful saying, the Bible says that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. How did he do that? He died on a cross. He was laid in a tomb. He rose on the third day such that all who turn from their sin and look to Jesus Christ and believe upon him shall be saved. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the gospel and you will be saved saved and then find your find your way into a gospel gospel church and we would love we would love to have you as part of our church and and we would invite you um yeah if you're gonna stay in great bend we would love to have you let's pray lord jesus we um we want to be clear and sober and reasonable when we think about the work of the gospel. We know, Lord, that we're not promised that every single person that we preach to is going to come to Christ. In fact, Lord, we know that, that the gospel brings division of a kind and that many times it, it brings pushback. And sometimes people are poisoned against us because of it, but Lord, it is the word of salvation itself and so we don't shrink from it. Even if for a time, Lord, there are strategic retreats in our life, uh, we know, that, Lord, that ultimately, ultimately, it's just, it's just so that we can continue to live and breathe and, and preach the gospel wherever we go and wherever we are. Help us as a church to be that gospel witness in our community. We know there are other churches that are, that are gospel churches, Lord, but for our part, we want to say and, and, and live and proclaim that gospel. And we would pray, Lord, that, that you would honor us. But as we honor and, and preach boldly, we pray, Lord, that you would honor your word 
and that, that you would cause the, the vase here, which is now empty, to be full of roses, Lord, that, that we would see a harvest. We pray for that earnestly. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.